0: For the rest of us, we are going to conclude our study in Zechariah, and we will be in Zechariah chapter 14 this morning. So if you would like to turn there with me, we're going to consider this passage together. You know, I love the stories where it looks like all is lost. It looks like the bad guys are going to win again, and then in the last moment The hero comes, the deliverer, the one who will set things right, the one who will vanquish what appear to be overwhelming odds, the hero of the story. That's what we see here in Zechariah chapter 14. Our hero has not been incapacitated or distant. He has been waiting for the right time. Our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again. That time is set and established by God. We look forward to it with all faith and hope and trust. He is coming again. And Zechariah gives us a glimpse into this story. He gives us one of the final scenes. He tells us that, yes, God has a plan that's unfolding, and God's plan has God winning not evil, not Satan, but God and all of those who are followers of God. And with that, we can rejoice as we come into this passage of Scripture, into this chapter. Now, we're going to begin by, first of all, thinking about this. The king is going to return. And what we're going to see described here in Zechariah chapter 14 is the day of the Lord. And Zechariah introduces this idea of the day of the Lord, where it's going to include devastation and then deliverance. So let's look at the devastation first. Let's get that over with. Let's get it out of the way. When we come to the 14th chapter, or chapter, the first verse, it says this, A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. There are ominous days ahead for the people of God. According to this passage, half of Jerusalem is going to be attacked. In the last days at the conclusion of seven years of tribulation. And if you want a description of tribulation, read the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. Terrible days lay ahead for planet Earth. Terrible times, plagues, natural disasters, wars, persecution, terrible things are in store for planet Earth. And at the conclusion of all of those terrible things... We find Jerusalem at the heart of it. As we have seen through our study in Zechariah, the Antichrist, the false prophet, who are puppets of none other than Satan, are all going to align against Jerusalem. And what we find here is a glimpse into what's going to take place. Jerusalem itself will experience an overrun For a short time and only to a limited extent, extent, half of the city is going to experience it, but they're going to face terrible times ahead. But we're going to see also that God has a promise that's going to take place because this is the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord doesn't mean defeat for God and His people. Day of the Lord means this is a day that is marked with the victory, the success, the outcome of what God has promised. And that's what we see here in this text. Our hero is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came the first time in the manger to save us from our sins, but he is coming again to take the world and establish his kingdom and have his rule here on planet earth. And that's what we look forward to. But before it gets light, it will get dark. And that's the warning that we find in this passage. This time of devastation, though, will not only come to the people of God. There's going to be devastation for the opponents of God. When we look at verses 12 through 15, and we're going to continue this theme of devastation, we want to see what the text tells us about this. Look at verse 12. In verse 12 it says this, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Listen, Israel is going to experience being overrun. Israel is going to experience all of the anger and hatred and zeal of the opponents of God, and recognize this, as they oppose Jerusalem and the people of God, they're not opposing Jerusalem and the people of God, they're opposing God Himself. There's a hatred toward God, an animosity toward Him. So all of this anger, all of this lashing out against God and His people will be met with force by God Himself. God has allowed wickedness to prevail We see it all the time. We get frustrated by it, don't we? And not just us, but when you read the pages of Scripture, you can see where wicked people have done horrible things to righteous people and seemingly get away with it. What we find in this text is God is going to put it to a stop. Verse 12 says this, This is the plague with which the Lord will strike the nations that fought against Jerusalem. So here's the picture. Jerusalem, the people of God, are surrounded by nations that are guided by the Antichrist, by the false prophet, all of them coming to wipe out Israel once and for all. Their hatred, their venom being directed toward God and His people. But this is what God does. God strikes them with a plague. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet and eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths and on that day they will be stricken by the Lord with great panic and each man will seize the hand of the other and they will attack each other. Now, this doesn't hardly sound like a Christmas-themed message. But listen, it is. And you know why? Jesus came into the manger to set things right. And part of setting things right is the exercise of his wrath against evil. And listen, what we see described in Scripture isn't even a contest. When Jesus returns, there won't be any question about who is triumphant. There won't be any guesswork of, is He going to make it? Will it all come about? What is described in Scripture is absolute victory by the Lord Jesus Christ. And He doesn't even need to lift a finger to defeat his foes. All he has to do is speak the word and they literally melt in place from a plague. That's the picture. So what we see is not just a baby in a manger. We see the Lord God Almighty and he is the same Jesus. The same Jesus who came inconspicuously into a manger Hidden, where angels had to tell shepherds to come, where a star told wise men to come later. This Jesus isn't just this baby. This Jesus is the conquering Savior and Lord. And that's what's pictured for us here in Zechariah as we see the rest of the story. You see, just as Jesus came the first time, he's coming again. And just as the terms of Jesus' first arrival were literally fulfilled, so the terms of Jesus' return are going to be literally fulfilled. What Zechariah is describing for us in this text will come to be. And so all of man's hatred and animosity toward God Will be crushed and put to rest. That's our hope. Now flip back to the third verse. As we look at the third verse, we find something else. We find deliverance for God's people. Where we left it off with devastation in verse 2 the city of Jerusalem is surrounded, the walls are breached, the enemy is in the city. But then in verse 3, we see this, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now the picture that we find here is that of a king going into battle. In the day in which this was written, politicians and kings didn't sit back and hide during times of war and send people to die. The kings would lead their armies into battle. They were there. They were part of it. The imagery here is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring with him the forces of heaven to deliver his people from those who will stand against him, those who will try to destroy them. This is also described in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, it says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is the Jesus that we worship at Christmas. Yes, He came the first time to vanquish sin, which He did by dying on the cross. But He also came as a foreshadowing of His second coming, where He will not only be the victor spiritually, but politically and physically. He will become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will reign over this earth. That is an amazing part of the passage. But then look at how it goes on in verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And on the Mount of Olives will be split in two, from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. You will flee by the mountain valley, for it will be extended to Azel, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Now the description here is hard to fathom. The Mount of Olives is going to split in two. Here's the imagery. Jesus returns. His feet touch on the Mount of Olives. And the moment that his feet touch on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two. This is miraculous. This isn't something that's caused by a rift in the earth, an earthquake. This is a miraculous thing that takes place because when it splits, it forms a valley through which people can pass. So it is the deliverance of God supernaturally, miraculously. And here's the amazing part about the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives has a prominent place in Scripture. When we look in Ezekiel, we find that the Mount of Olives was where the glory of God departed. There's a story about the glory of God leaving the temple and going to the gates and going to the Mount of Olives and then visibly being seen leaving. The glory of God was this glowing manifestation of God's brilliance and glory. And in this vision that Ezekiel has, he talks about the glory of God departing. But we also find this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we find Peter, or excuse me, Luke record for us, men of Galilee, they said, and these are angels speaking, why do you stand here looking into the sky?" This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, here's the important truth that we have to find in this text Jesus Christ was standing on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. The location of where Christ will return and touch down on planet earth is mentioned in Scripture with crystal clarity. The circumstances of what will take place, crystal clear. And who it is who is returning, crystal clear. And the fact that this will be the resurrected Jesus Christ, who had been born in the manger, killed on the cross, resurrected the third day, appeared to people with a bodily, visible manifestation, and bodily was taken up into heaven, is coming back bodily... To return to earth and establish his kingdom on earth. That's what the scripture teaches us in this text. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is going to be something that is amazing. We can't even picture it with our minds. But the description is something that happens that is dramatic and even catastrophic to the people who are aligned against God and his people. Look at verse 6. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. A day known to the Lord when evening comes, there will be light. Now, not only does Jesus miraculously change the topography, but He changes nature itself. There will not be light or darkness There will be this dramatic experience of the supernatural, the spiritual taking place that is undeniable. Today, we look and we don't see that much happening with the supernatural. There are those who say that only what we can see or touch or taste is reality. How short-sighted. God demonstrates That He can perform the miraculous. And in this coming time, that's exactly what God will do. And no one will be able to explain it away. No one will be able to deny it. They will experience it. And here's the thing, if you're on the wrong side of it, that's not the place to be. You need to align yourself with God with his followers. Look at what else we find in this text. In verse 8, it goes on to say, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. The picture is a flow of water from Jerusalem itself, some going to the Mediterranean Sea, some going toward what was the Dead Sea, And this flowing, living water will be a testimony that Jerusalem has changed. That there is a new ruler, a new leader, and it is Jesus. And He is the living water. And He will demonstrate through the imagery of this that indeed all life comes from Him as the King reigning over Jerusalem. In verse 9, and I love this verse, it says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and His name the only name. We live in a society that tells us to be tolerant and accepting of differing attitudes and concepts about who God is Now listen we can be loving and compassionate and kind to people who differ with us It is for God to determine how they're dealt with not us But truth is truth And there is one God and only one name That will get us into a relationship with God the Father. The Bible teaches exclusivity. It teaches that there is only one way to God. And that is through the one Lord. The one name. The Lord of Lords. The King of Kings. God doesn't wet his finger and hold it up to the wind and say, Which way is the wind blowing? That's the way I'll go. God says, here it is, folks. This is what it is. Accept it. Embrace it. Or reject it. But in the final analysis, God decrees and determines the outcome in whatever decision that we make. What makes sense is to embrace the God who is, the one and the only Lord the one and the only name. Verses 10 and 11 go on to say this. The whole land from Geba to Raman, south of Jerusalem, will become like Araba. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place. In other words, things will flatten out. But Jerusalem will be elevated, lifted up. And the whole city, and it goes through all the names of these gates that are mentioned here that talk about the differing directions Of Jerusalem. They will be preserved. And then in the 11th verse, this final statement it will be inhabited, never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. When we look at Jerusalem now, not secure. It's the push of a button away from terrible devastation. There are internal Conflicts as terrorists blow up nightclubs and buses. They live under the constant threat of terrorist threats. And listen, it's not the United States, it's not the government of Israel that will deliver it. It's God. But once God delivers Jerusalem, no more destruction. It's preserved. It's protected. Then we come to the 16th verse. When we come to verse 16, we find the dominion of the Lord over the whole earth. And we find that the Lord will bring discipline for those who refuse to worship Jesus. Look at verse 16. Jesus has returned in the context of the 16th verse. He has established His kingdom on earth. He is here as King of kings, Lord of lords. He is reigning in Jerusalem. And in the 16th verse, it talks about survivors. It says, When the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, here's the imagery. We saw earlier that Jerusalem is surrounded by many nations committed to their destruction and their demise, right? So here they are gathered against the people of God, ready to destroy them utterly. Jesus delivers them, and the entire army is wiped out. But as it is then, so it is today, when we send an army, we don't send everyone in our nation. Our nation sends some of us to go and fight our battles. In this day, it will be the same. Now, bear in mind when you read Revelation and you see the plagues and the terrible things that will be visited on the earth during the seven years of tribulation, it's a wonder that anyone survives. There will be much, much diminished population on planet Earth, but there will be survivors. The armies will be wiped out, but the nations that sent them will remain. And they will go in to the kingdom, and they have an option do we follow the Lord or do we rebel? Here, the Word of God is telling us that when Jesus establishes His kingdom on earth, there will be a change in the hearts and the minds of the opponents of God. You see, not only will Israel turn to Jesus, but many of the pagan nations that have sent their armies to destroy Jerusalem, the remnants, the survivors, will turn. And they will embrace Jesus. But if anyone is so foolish that they refuse to follow Jesus, there are consequences. Jesus tells us in His Word that they will face terrible, terrible plights and plagues. They will experience drought. God will not bless nations that refuse to follow Him. That's the text. That's what it's saying right here. These survivors from all nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. There will be nations that come to worship him. But some may get it in their head. We'll go our own way. We'll follow our own course. Probably descendants of those who believed and turned to God, and they will face consequences when they do so. The final part of Zechariah is found in verses 20 and 21. And in this part of the text, what we find is the Word of God reveals how everything will be dedicated to the Lord. Now, we've already seen that there will be nations that come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time for people to give praise and thanks to God for His provision. So annually, this will take place. It will be one of the feasts that people enjoy and engage in. But what we find here is something else. When it says in verse 20, On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horse's And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls in front of the altar. We understand that positionally, God owns everything, right? That's who God is. God owns everything. We understand that. But there's a world out there that doesn't. What's going to happen here is, experientially, they will catch up. They will understand that everything is as good as inscribed as holy to the Lord. Do you know what it means to be holy to the Lord? It means set apart to Him. It means directed toward God, consecrated to Him. When Jesus returns and establishes His throne on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, everyone will recognize that if He is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then everything is His. Holy to the Lord. So the bells on horses, even something that small, holy to the Lord. The pots that you cook with, holy to the Lord. Isn't it easy to fall into the trap of having this secularism where we look and we say, these are secular things, these are sacred things. I get the secular stuff. God gets the sacred stuff. It's an easy trap to fall into. There will be no confusion with that when Jesus is king of planet Earth. All of those things will be holy unto the Lord. Look at verse 21, and with this we conclude. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now, we understand the cooking pots, holy unto the Lord, and how they will be used in worship and praise of Him. But what in the world does the last part of this phrase mean, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord? God got it in for the Canaanites? Here's the idea. the Canaanites were a people who were rampant with idolatry. The symbolism of the Canaanite here isn't necessarily the people group of the Canaanites as much as it is an attitude, a thought process, where we mix the things of idolatry with the things of God. And we all do it. Something very easy for us to do. Materialism. As a matter of fact, some of your versions... Translate Canaanite with merchants. The idea is we won't confuse the sacred and the secular. We will see that it all belongs to God. And there's not a place for this dichotomy between the two. We will understand that our full devotion, all of our desires are to be directed toward Jesus and not toward the things that had been distractions. So whether this text is referring to idolatry and trying to have this mixture of God's truth and teaching with man's concepts, or whether it refers to the commercialism that can take place, yes, even in sacred things, here's the point. It will all be directed toward the Lord. Now, this is what we have to look forward to. But listen, the attitudes expressed in this passage don't need to wait for the return of the Lord. The baby who was born in the manger was Lord when He was born in the manger. He was worshipped by angels. They recognized Him for who He is. The Lord was Lord when He died on the cross and surrendered His spirit so that he could give his body and his blood for our salvation. He was Lord when he was buried. He was Lord when he rose again. Lord when he ascended. He is Lord today as he is in heaven, standing at the right hand of God as our advocate. And he is Lord when he returns and establishes kingdom on earth. As the saints... The Revelation passage mentions that he will return with his holy ones. Now, some see that as angels, but I believe that it refers to all of those who are set apart unto God. We will return with Jesus. And when he establishes his kingdom on earth, we will be at his side, doing what God calls us to do. So, this Christmas, as you think about the baby in the manger, A lot of times we look at him as the safe Jesus. He's the one that we can look at and go, ah, such a cute story. Little animals around a manger, a baby laying in, a feeding trough. That's the comfortable Jesus. That's the safe Jesus. But that is the same Jesus who comes again, establishing his kingdom on earth coming again literally and bodily just as he came the first time. So this Christmas, think about the coming Jesus as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. What truth this is, how we look forward to Jesus' return. May we be encouraged by this passage and the hope that it affords. And how thankful we are for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.